Hey, Caroline. Hi, Beth. Hi. Uh, thanks for joining me today. So excited to talk to you. We're recording now. Everybody, I'd like to introduce you to somebody who is so precious to me. Her name is Caroline Williams. She is the founder and head rebel of the Do Good Only Company. We'll get into that in a little while. Uh, but first, Caroline, I would like to ask you to tell me in your own words why we are talking today. Well, Beth, I think the most important reason is this is my annual, first annual period of only doing things I like with people I like for the next two weeks. So here I am, and we'll see where the conversation takes us. How do we know each other? Do you want the official version? No. Okay. Um, years ago, when I made this journey to the Netherlands in a search for what had formed my mother before she became our mother, I couldn't come here without a job. So we ended up at the same employer. And what was really interesting is the team that I joined wasn't 100% sure what to do with me, but they figured since I'd had a Dutch mother, I could fit in. But one of the first things every single person said to me was, there's another American here. Her name is Beth Massa. Do you two know each other? As if like, because we both came from the United States, we would just have this instant, oh yeah, she, you know, she grew up on my street or, you know, we, we already know each other. So the name kept going round and round and round. And then we did meet. And some of the first conversations we had were about the academic, the big problems, the where people were trying to solve problems. And it went from there. And it was, and I think people were surprised that we would get along. I mean, they thought, you know, you're both Americans, so that must be the case. You must be a perfect match for each other. But I think that they thought that I would be shocked by how you think and your ideas and how you communicate. And instead, I was like, whoa, here's somebody I can sit at the lunch counter with and just start to go with, you know, crazy ideas and ask questions. And there isn't this sort of like fear of the unknown in the conversation. There's all of that room. And that's how I remember meeting you. I have not heard this story before. But my story coming to uh, this former employer is similar in that they also didn't know what to do with me. So it's pretty clear. In fact, I'm sure of it. In your case, where your first boss was like, I have to hire a woman. I must. I'm required to hire a woman. She's American, uh, co you know, coming from Seattle. And I was like, oh, wow, really? And um, And then it's just one of those unexplainable unexplainable moments where there's a connection or a fascination or an interest but I just found everything about you so interesting and I still do and that's why we're talking here today um yeah and so I think that over the years we have I'm always baffled when you have paid me the compliment of saying that maybe I've inspired you or motivated you in some way because I always find myself so ridiculous, but it's very, very true in the opposite direction 
of how brave you are, how clear you are in your thinking and how different and unsettling your point of view is. And this is something that I loved about the time when we were working together, when the company that we worked for was like, wow, we really need to get in some diversity and inclusion. And you're like, okay, people, this is what diversity inclusion actually looks like. And they completely backed away from it. They just weren't, they just weren't ready for for the truth, I don't think, that wasn't packaged in whatever package that they thought it was supposed to be in. Um, and I was like, whoa, this is, I am just loving this from the sidelines. It always brought a huge smile to my face, even though I know it probably was like painful or disappointing for you. But um, well, it's funny that you say that because I remember, I did not know that part that they had to have a woman. But that explains why I had to go through 13 interviews for that particular role. Um, but what was funny is I remember getting off the airplane and sort of thinking, here I am in the Netherlands. I've got my animals. I've got four kennels. You know, I speak a little bit of Dutch. You know, let's just go. And I remember walking. I remember going to HR and saying, okay, so where are your employee resource groups? You know, where's your women at? Where's your LGBTQ at? Where's your... You know, and they looked at me like, what? And I said, because I'm I'm ready to, oh, there goes the banjo. Mm -hmm. There, I'm ready to help out. I'm ready to, you know, get started. I'm ready to, I did it in, in Seattle and, you know, I think it's important. And they're looking at me with this sort of look that you reserve for people who just don't quite get it. And they were like, Caroline, um, we we don't we don't have those groups here and i was like oh well i can help you start them you know thinking you know maybe people were too busy or it's a smaller uh, subsidiary what have you and i was like i'm happy to help you start them because you know it's, it's important and um, i love to do it and i have a lot of experience and they they looked at me again with that that sort of look that you reserve for someone who's not quite getting it and they were like caroline um we don't have those groups because People don't need them here. Um, women are emancipated here in the Netherlands. Uh, they don't need um, groups that they can meet at or support groups. That's a very American problem. And I didn't even know what to do with that. So my first reaction to that was, well, I think you need a women at group pretty much anywhere I don't think it's a, a problem space or something that's really reserved I said I'm happy to start it and do it without you know without anybody else needing to to commit resources and they looked at me and they're like no you're not really getting it we made a conscious choice not to have these types of groups and I was like oh, okay and so I left that conversation and I remember thinking to myself there was sort of the first moment where you're like, when you leave one country and go to another country, there's always this, there's the period where you are sort of thinking, I'm going to, in six months, I'll go back, right? And and then you start building up your life and you start discovering, okay, this is the really irritating habit that how they empty trash cans and they don't separate their recycling or consolidate them. These are the, these are the, the, the habits and, and the things that you learn, the small things. And I thought to myself, you know what? This is how they look at it. Maybe this is just the way it is. And so I put it in the back burner in my own brain for like, 
two and a half years and just did then all of that kind of stuff and work outside of work because in the outside of that environment I could see very clearly that the emancipation was not at a level that was on the marketing material and what have you and I remember in the last year before uh, we parted ways I thought I'm gonna start the group anyway I don't really care and so I did and um, and every time we met there were people that came and there was a need for it and that so it was an under the radar group but it, there was a need for it and I think that that is that's where the community comes from and that's what's critical if we wait for others to decide what we need instead of we building it together with what we need then the chances are we aren't going to get what it is that we need you know that um the response that you got of um you know we don't need that here i've had versions of that conversation so many times in different contexts of you know, for example, speaking about an, a disease or an illness, Dutch will say, well, we don't have that here. Like, you don't have diabetes in this country. You don't have, like, and they have this strange idea of, you know, the body will, they think that the body can, in, in every instance, miraculously cure itself. Therefore, these diseases just don't exist. We don't have that here. We don't have sexism here. We don't have racism here. Um, and these conversations can't go anywhere unless you come at it with love and empathy and a willingness to go deep into the nuance when clearly you see sexism or racism, you know, casual or overt everywhere in this country. And the, the question that I always ask them whether it's, you know, having representation in the wor workplace or stop singing racist songs or the Schwarzschild issue or whatever is you guys, meaning you Dutch people, uh, need to decide whose feelings matter more, yours or the people whose feelings you might be hurting. Um, and uh, then, then, then the, the conversation goes in a different direction. I think that that's where, so I look at it from, there's, there's two ways that we can navigate through the world. We can navigate through the world with the, where, what I call easy connections, right? Where you hang out in your bubble with people who think like you, people who do like you, people who have the same values as you, and, and, and that's your bubble. And it could be positive. It can be all of these things. Or we can go for the hard connections. And the hard connections are the ones where you are not guaranteed an agreement or a successful outcome. What you are guaranteed is a degree of discomfort, um, a stretch on both sides, and a willingness to need to come back to. And so, because I can hang out all day long, and I, I rarely go now to diversity and inclusion events, because I don't need to hang out with the people who believe in all of these causes. We know who we are and where we sit and where we can be found. What I need to be doing is having the conversations 
and opening the doors with the people who don't see a need for an inclusive society. And that doesn't mean that I need to go and convert them. That doesn't mean I need to, you know, be able to get them to sign on to a pledge or an action or a commitment. What it means is I need to be willing to reach out my hand and ask them a question and to listen to the answer. And that in those hard connections, when the hard connections are made, that is where we actually start to see the change that we want to see in society. But we have to make those hard connections. It's not enough to just be on the easy connections, right? And often we get stuck there because we're like, and when you're looking at creating change in any format, it's always easier to go with the people who want to be around you or want to listen to your message or, or want to get on board. But that's a limited audience. And when so much of how we look at change in society and we don't look at it as the expansion of what is good for more groups in society. We look at it as if that group gets more rights, somehow that takes away from my rights or I'm going to have less. And that again is also one of the, the players in creating that distance and those hard connections, right? Instead of understanding that expansion in concept is exactly that expansion you know it's growing it's greater it's becoming bigger it's not taking a piece away from you to give to someone else it's expanding those gifts and rights and access for everyone mm -hmm. last night i was listening to the jeff bezos interview on the lex friedman podcast and Obviously, he's a controversial figure, but to listen to him talk, if it was always like the first time you ever heard him speak is always so inspiring. And while there are assumptions that he makes in his arguments uh, that I disagree with, he was, I'll set that aside, but he was saying, um, well, you know, my, my goal is to have a trillion human beings out in space like, wait, 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 I gotta make, but here's the point, because if you have a trillion human beings out on space, that means you might have a million or, you know, a thousand Mozarts or a thousand Einsteins. And, and he was talking about that because Lex was saying, well, you know, the, 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 the first argument that people make is why aren't you focusing on fixing things here on earth instead of thinking about this? And then they talked about that. But I went back to that again, because I'm like, the, that is nothing but a metaphor for what, already exists here like if you don't if you don't incorporate diversity inclusion and equity you're already missing out on the thousand einsteins and mozarts that are already alive here on earth that don't have the opportunities or the exposure to become an Einstein, the the you know to to actualize the einstein or the mozart that they may have been born into into being and that's what i have so that's one of my fundamental problems with the effective altruism movement and the way of thinking and the long-termism way of thinking that the idea that if you can have a trillion people in space, you will have hundreds of thousands of more Mozarts, you know, Einstein's, what have you. That's that I think is a really self-serving 
way of thinking Utility and it's thinking, escapist yeah. mm-hmm. and it's and the first thing that comes up to me it, that comes up in my head when I hear things like that is what makes you think you have the right to continue to damage where we are today in the hopes that you will someday long-term have your legacy for putting 1 trillion people in space. And that is a simplification of it, but it is a thought, it is a, I see it as a complete lack of accountability. You are not taking accountability for what you have created here and now. And instead you're projecting it into this world where mythically everything will be rosy and clear because of the technological things that I have created as a possibility. So you're taking zero responsibility for the extraction that you're pulling out of the current world to justify this future world where who's to say you how much suffering must happen before then for even and how much suffering has happened for you to even get to that point. And I find it a really egotistical, self-centered and complete lack of responsibility and accountability position and a way of thinking and a way of justifying it. And that for me, um, for me, the level of importance on what it is you do in this life is what you do in this life. Your legacy is what you have done in this life, right? Yeah. And I think that we get blindsided by that magical thinking towards a future because it is an escapism. It is a not having, it also enables us to justify why we make the choices in the, in the here and now, right? That we can say, well, we don't, we, we don't want to have that problem. So we're not going, we're not going to do that. We're going to do this. We're not going to. We don't want to have an even uh, a, a more increase in, in uh, climate change. So we are not going to step over to these kinds of fuels. We don't want to deal with it. So I think for me, I have very little confidence that the motions and belief systems of the people who prescribe to the effective altruism movements and the long-termism and the future of life and all of the rest of this. I have a hard time believing you because I don't see your concern for humanity that's here today. Yeah. And I think it goes way beyond ego, egoism. It's, it's, uh, ego maniacal because what's happened is you get this, this genius person who's made these decisions in life that have made him phenomenally successful. So the platitudes or the assumptions on which he bases the future of the world that he is because of his wealth, he gets to decide for the rest of us where we're headed. And so he'll say things like, well, I've never met somebody who said, oh, you know, Jeff, well, I wish that Amazon would, um, deliver my packages slower and more expensive. Nobody says that. I'm like, wait a minute, wait a minute. Lots of people say that. I say that. In fact, I'm going to build a whole new website that's premised not on the 
uh, the finite path toward faster, cheaper, faster, cheaper, but something that's opposite of that, which actually is based in community and connection. So I actually will make the argument that people find more meaning out of slightly slower or slightly more expensive because of what they get out of it. But he's made that assumption for the rest of us. The second assumption that he made or conclusion or determination that he made for the rest of us is that a reduction of per capita energy consumption is a step backwards. So of course we need to go out into space or we need to, um, you know, mine space for resources because of the exponential amount of per capita energy that we're all going to need because that's how we realize our potential as human beings. And so of course we have to get human beings off of this planet because the resources here are finite. So he's sort of twisted this in a way of like, you know, being pro-environmentalist by saying, well, I've created this problem. And so to continue the problem, I need to get all of the, all of my Amazon customers off of planet Earth into some space station. And I'm like, wait, wait, stop, stop, stop. Like, let's let's challenge the premises here. But of course, that never happens. Um, and so and the other thing that these kind of guys always say is that there's never been a better time to be a human on planet Earth. And that, you know, everybody is everyone. He says everyone is living better lives than we did 50, 100, 500 years ago. I'm like, okay, but let's go back to the per capita thing. Because all great civilizations were built on slavery. And one could also make the case that imprisonment is slavery. Um, working for Amazon when you have no other job opportunities uh, in, you know, Reno, Nevada or something, and, you know, not being paid a living wage and you're having your back broken and repetitive stress and injuries as a form of slavery um, and it's collateral damage in the form of progress and like you said you're absolved of all that responsibility if your thinking is well I'm building the foundation for the future that from a thousand years from now it doesn't fly with me I'm you know and so on the one hand like I find I find the way that he his his tenants for building a business or running a business really inspiring but the premises that he makes um, are really scary to me because again he and the Elon Musks of the world are so powerful that they get to decide for the rest of us where our priorities are like everybody talks about NFTs or everybody talks about AI like AI is this foregone conclusion well because you guys decided that that's where we're going to put all the resources no one else gets a chance to no one else has the power to say wait a minute I'm going to put the priority and the money over in this direction well I actually I disagree with that mm. um, I think we always have a choice and I think we often make choices for convenience or because everyone else is doing it or because it's comfortable. I think being present in your own life and taking agency in your own life um, makes a, a huge difference in perspective. And I think also the idea that we merely hand over the thought that because these two parties or more parties exist, that we should then 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 the choice has been made there are no other options and i don't think that's true i think that that's part of the thinking that is designed to make us think there will never be an alternative or there will never be something that competes on that level with x or y but i would argue that it doesn't need to be on that level i think there's far more disturbance and disruption and opportunity in the grassroots alternative ecosystems and building things because the existing systems that are in place at most the room that they're ever going to make for something that's different is a token is a tokenism right well we can choose to build other things and we may not achieve the same level of scale as one of those two might because of their access to resources but if we're building multiple ecosystems in multiple places around the world 
and we're standing together in a degree of, of collective collectivity and solidarity, then we are building alternatives. And it is, it is a, like people say to me, I don't use anything that Elon Musk builds or buys or owns. I also don't use any of the meta products at all because I have fundamental, I don't use Amazon either. I have fundamental disagreements with their values as corporations, as their extractive nature and what they stand for. And people say to me always, and people say, but how will people get in touch with you if you don't use any of these products? And I'm like, people will get in touch with me the same way people have been getting in touch with people who they want to get in touch with for hundreds of years. They will reach out for decades. You know, the fun, we have more and more platforms and tools and abstraction layers between us as members of society. And we're forgetting the, fu- the first and foremost powerful one is actually that intention and that outreach, the actual connection. So when people say, well, you can't be an, you can't be an entrepreneur without being accessible on WhatsApp. I'm like, yeah, I can. And you would be amazed how much more room I have in my head and in my life, because I have made a conscious choice for an alternative product that I support and, and use and pay for, right? We all have these choices in how we go through our lives. It's a matter of deciding also, what am I willing to give up for convenience? What am I willing, I mean, why do you need to be able to order every single thing that is delivered within, you know, the race to the bottom within 72 hours or less than that, depending on where you are with the same day? Why is it that your life is so, so important that you cannot keep yourself, you cannot go get your own groceries? Why do you have to have someone go and pick up your groceries for you and deliver them to you within an hour or they get a bad review. All of these, all of these things, if it's not important enough for you to eat, then maybe the question you should be asking yourself is what is important to me? If I can't be bothered to do my own grocery shopping, what can you be bothered to do? And so we also feed into this, this hype and this cycle and this power game and dynamic, but we can also choose to step out of it. And we can also choose to reclaim that power and share it in, in, in other ways. We can choose to go and buy something locally or to get something secondhand or from another way. We don't have to give into it. I don't believe in that. I believe that we have that choice. We live in countries predominantly with high standards of living. You know, not to say that there isn't poverty, but it's not. It's like the easier life has gotten with technology, the further away we have gotten from actually doing the things that are actually important to sustaining life. Yeah, that's why um, I actually think you don't disagree with me. I think you do agree with me. Um, or there's a, we're closer to agreement than you might think. And the reason for that is because I don't think there's anybody who would listen, anybody who's going to listen to what you just said would disagree with you. Yet people still behave in ways that they know 
are maybe against their values and they feel bad about it. So what I was going back to is at some point, you know, to go against what Jeff said, what people said, you know, people say, well, nobody ever said I want it, you know, more expensive and cheaper. On the opposite opposite end of that, there's, you know, there's a there's a dead end to what he says, where it's like, well, everything that I want is instantly delivered to me and it's free. So that's the that's the like logical conclusion he's headed to. So it's not scalable, whereas creating an experience that replaces that convenience, which which actually causes us, I think, anxiety, uh, tendency to overspend, fill our houses and lives with things that we don't need and isolates us more into our house. If you can replace that with an experience that's based more on connection and community, you I think that you need to give people some help that there are like people like us that maybe need to build the thing that people can gravitate to so that they don't have to be so disciplined um, in, in constantly staying into their values. Because obviously, you know, this is a thing I say a lot. If that works, it would have already worked. So I think people need some help. You need to offer them the alternative. To a degree. Yes. But I also think that making the assumption that, you must be 100% of anything or you're not something is also incorrect. True. Right? Yes. It's, 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 it's unrealistic and it's an artificial construction that you, that you are binary and, and that things are binary in that sense. I do think that the more aware you are of your values and what they mean to you and what they actually are, the easier it is for you to live by them. And I think what often comes into um, what often comes into play is that people don't know what they are because they're not really things we think about. You know, when, when I have conversations with people and they, they want to talk about why, where they're where they are is not suiting them and not fitting for them or, or, or that they are suffering, they're having a difficulty that they're experiencing one of the first things that almost always comes up is there is a mismatch between the values that they hold and what is happening in their environment. And it could be work related. It could be person, you know, relationship oriented. It could be, doesn't matter what it is. There is a mismatch and that whatever is happening to them and that they're experiencing is going is in direct conflict to a value that they hold. And it's continually going over that boundary of that value, which then creates the resulting feelings and, and discomfort and experiences and everything else. And then when you ask the question, well, what values are important to you? And they're not aware. One of the first indicators of what your values are are actually what makes you uncomfortable. So if something makes you uncomfortable, turn that 180 degrees, not to be comfortable, but because then you know what value it is that you hold, right? If I am, for example, I have a lot of difficulty. I have a direct physical reaction when I am around people that I think are trying to manipulate the experience or the conversation and not manipulate in the sense that they want to sell me, you know, they want to get, they want to 
hook me up to a crypto currency account and clear out my bank account. Not that kind of manipulation. I mean, even just socially desirable answers, all of those kinds of things. I'm very, very, I have a, I have a direct physical reaction to it. And 180 degrees, the opposite side of that reaction is one of my core values is trust and transparency and that openness and for me that kind of manipulative conversation or behavior is a direct opposite to that so it was it's very i can map that that here's the thing that makes me uncomfortable and here's the value that i hold because of that this is the value and getting people sometimes to be even be aware of that what brings out the negative feeling in them is actually a direct stepping over what they believe in and what they hold dear is the is sometimes the first step to helping them understand what they are capable of and the power that they have and it is so often when you look at people whether it's burnout whether it's whatever life stage you're in the things that are creating conflict in you and in your 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 thoughts your world your existence are always something that is stepping over your values do you think that there's a difference between manipulation and persuasion yes what to you is the difference i think the difference i think in persuasion you have and i think it's a very it is a very fine border I had a conversation once uh, with my father who was very, very smart. And we were having a conversation. We were at Arlington National Cemetery. And I, we have had a, a rocky relationship over the years that we're here, but we're doing the best we can. And, um, and I said to him, I said, every time you try to we we have a conversation we make an agreement and then you then try to change it like I would be if he knew I was coming to visit him he would call me while I was in mid-flight and leave me a message and say oh plans have changed for tonight so and so is coming along and we'll meet you at the restaurant at this time knowing fully I'm in an airplane I can do nothing about it by the time I land, I have an hour to get to where we're supposed to meet. And the person that is supposed to be there is someone I have said repeatedly, I don't ever want to see or have any relationship with. So this was the, as I say in Dutch, the so fails to cure, uh, that uh, we had been this dance together. And so we're standing there and I said to him, I said, I don't, I need you to stop doing that. I need you to understand that if you have something to say to me, that you say exactly what you're thinking and you stop trying to get the situation to happen the way you, the outcome that you want. I said, that is manipulation. I said, and I do not do well with it. I don't need you to be perfect. I don't need you to have the right words to say in dealing with your adult daughter. You know, I need you to try and I need you to be real. And so he looks at me. And he's like, but it's not manipulation. I said, how do you figure it's not manipulation? 
he said, I have an outcome that I want to reach. And I think about what do I need to do to get everybody there to, so that outcome is reached. He said, it's strategic thinking. And I said, nope, pretty sure <laughs> like you could call it strategic thinking. And they're related, but it is manipulation. And I think that persuasion, if you are persuading someone that it, it, to a position or to a, a belief that goes against what their core values are, then I think that it's very similar because it's not, you're not interested in what drives that person. You're interested in the outcome that benefits you that you're trying to get to, whether that may be selling a product or having dinner together or whatever, but it's not about the other person, what their needs are and what they're looking for. It's about the other person doing what you want them to do. And then I think they are related. When you look at it from the standpoint of showing someone what's possible that they haven't seen before in either themselves or in the world or what have you, then it takes on a more gray layer. Um, I use persuasion in my role. I use persuasion when I talk to companies to get them to think about um, hiring more diverse and inclusive IT talent. Because if I just tell them the facts around the, the, well, we have this person and they can write this many lines of code and they can build this many models. And if I leave it at that, then no one is going to take the leap without being enthused, right? So then it falls to me to be able to help those people on the other side of the conversation to become inspired, to become open to the idea that, hey, it might be a great thing if we added um, to our employee pool and we hire people from different backgrounds with different perspectives. The, their skill sets and their experiences can add to what we have. But they won't do that without a degree of persuasion. I want to get into what the do good only company does. I want to get into why you are so deep into this world, this space as a pioneer and a thought leader and a leader in general. So I want to start with a question. Who are you, Caroline, and what do you come from? I think I'm gonna take the second part of that question first. Um, what I come from is a long, long, long line of troublemakers and different thinkers and people who would definitely be classified as outliers for various, uh, for various personality, um, traits, shall we say, and various actions and choices that they've made. Um, and I think that that is key to why I do the work I do and who I am. 
there's an, a tremendous sense of relief in knowing that actually in your DNA pool, there are people who've been expelled for countries for writing books. There have been people who've been expelled from university for being married when women were not supposed to be, they were supposed to be one or the other. There is deep delight in knowing that um, you come from a line of people who didn't listen to what the surrounding society said and chose to do things their way. It didn't make their lives easier. It rarely made their lives easier, but it did make them richer and more entertaining and inspirational. So um, that is what I come from. Um, and I am the, like all of us, we're all the product of our experiences. And I think one of the things that makes me do the work that I do is I get to put all of those experiences together. And instead of having to compartmentalize, which I'm actually really fantastically good at, um, instead of having to have this identity that sits here and this identity that does this every day, I get to mix it all together and say, where are you going with this today? What are we going to do? Who are you going to work with? What problems are you going to tackle? Who are you going to irritate? Um, who, who are you going to, who are you going to see grow? You know, and there's a tremendous amount of freedom in that. There's a tremendous amount of struggle, but there's also a tremendous amount of freedom. So this feels like a very natural continuation of your, your 23andMe profile, so to speak. This is really, it's not even intrinsic. It's just in your actual DNA. Literally. It's an yes. epigenetic situation. Yes. So you're just on the continuum. I am. And I mm -hmm. could, and I think, and also it's funny because I remember um, one of the things, one of the the art, the the remarks in your life that you hold on to that have probably had the most sort of um, feeling of, ooh, ouch, you know, the people who love you the most who have said certain things, all of the remarks in my life that have had, still have those sort of little bit ouch moments are the ones where people I love dearly said to me, why can't you be more like uh, I remember once it was, why can't you be more like the cheerleaders and the popular kids in high school? Who said that to you? My mother. And I was devastated because I was like, Did how? Did she want you to be more like them or she, she just wanted curious? it to be easier. <laughs> she wanted, she wanted it to be easier, you know, and because my mother was an outsider as well. So she want she, and I know in her point of frustration at that moment, she thought that I was making it unnecessarily difficult on myself. And she also knew that that would, make me crazy because that that was just not my thing with my mohawk and my ramones t-shirts not much has changed and uh, caroline's wearing a, a joey ramones t-shirt right now for and those listening. Yes. you know so <laughs> that and i remember also her father my opa saying to me at some point but don't you want to be like everyone else and for those those mo those things and now I, I know now, of course, why they, they stung so much because I have this this DNA line of, of doing exactly different. But I also know that for them, 
they also had made choices that were outside of what society expected. So I know that in the thought that was to save me from, you know, those feelings of exclusion or what have you. But those were the remarks that were like the most, the, like in my teenage form, you know, persona. Oh my God, how can you say that to me? You know, I don't want to be like the cheerleader. So it came, you think it came from a place of love and worry as opposed to a, clay, a place of embarrassment or her want, wishing that you were the cheerleader or what do you think? I know it, it came from a place of mm. love and worry because also when I was 14 and 15 in those years, I would get sent to the Netherlands to have a, uh, math lessons because my grades weren't high enough according to my parents and as the oldest of four children I was like oh I get time with Oma and Opa without anybody else around I was like yeah my it's, it's terrible there it's like it's torture central you know and I would like do everything in my power to convince my parents that this was the worst thing that you could do to me um send but, you to Europe yes so to, that they to my Oma and Opa yeah because uh -huh. my because I was <laughs> I was sort of a, a difficult to handle uh, you know you're 14 and you're the oldest of four and you love punk rock and speed metal and you don't really you know you've got your own ideas going on and um so I get sent to my oma and opa because my we would be moving because with my dad's being in the navy we moved every year almost every year we started a new school and so I'd be sent here and I was deep in this phase where I created a lot of my own t-shirts because I didn't have unlimited funds. So I would buy m packs of men's white undershirts and paint them like, and I'd have stuff like the Ramones forever, you know, black flag, you know, blonde, you name it. And they, they were terrible t-shirts because I have very little artistic talent in that. I'm creative, but artistic talent is not my strength. And I would walk around the Netherlands with my Oma and Opa and then later on, my aunt and uncle and their children in Den Helder, which is a little bit smaller than The Hague, in all of these t-shirts and stuff that I made and my crazy braids and my crazy hair. and, and Is this in the 80s? This was yeah. late 80s. Uh, yeah, late 80s. Mm -hmm. And everybody, you know, Hofnip over the Meifeld, don't stand out. And I know, even in Amsterdam, that my aunt would always try to buy me clothes that were more fitting. And I was like, yeah, no, I don't, I don't need it. I don't want it. I, you know, I, I'm fine. I got my t-shirts, you know, I'm cool. I'm good. And I look back at those, and I look back at those pictures from those days and it's just, it's like the perfect uniform Dutch family. And then there's me in the middle of it. And, um, wasn't until, uh, I think I was probably, my aunt then came to visit us in America uh, in one year. And she said to me, she goes, you know, she said, I don't know what we, what you were thinking with those t-shirts that you were wearing and those clothes that you were wearing. We were so embarrassed. <laughs> what the neighbors thought, especially, you know, in, in Den Helder. Do normal. Do normal. She's like, I'm really glad to see that you, you sort of outgrew it. But she said it was very difficult for your Oma to to not step you know not to not say anything and to not step in and I laughed because I was like I never felt that way with Oma you know then that's that there's that there's that unconditional love and concern of being excluded that people who are used to being excluded carry for each other so 
it 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 never felt it never felt like they didn't love me for who I am but it hurt because if there was anyone that I thought understood me it would be my my role models mm. Mm. yeah my my I also my I would also label myself as an outsider about to launder excluded person I have felt excluded a lot in my life um it's one of the things I sort of joke about moving to the Netherlands like I've always been an outsider or a foreigner and now I actually am an outsider and a foreigner so it fits it feels comfortable but um I you know I come from a line of you know just farmers lower middle class people that you know came from Ireland and kind of lived the exact same life in the U.S. they would have lived in Ireland and and my mother and I are the only ones that actually acted upon our dreams and desires. And everyone else, not everyone, but like a lot of people in my family, they know we've had these conversations. I, I'm very annoying to them because as soon as they say, oh, I wish that or I'd love to, I'm like, okay, what's your plan? Mm -hmm. Let's do it. Let's get it on. They're like, Beth, Beth, whoa, whoa, whoa. Like, stop coming on so strong. Back off. Mm -hmm. And I get so ashamed and so embarrassed. Like, Beth, you've done it again. You've imposed your own values or motivations or excitement on somebody who doesn't really, isn't inviting that. They're just talking. And again, I always feel like an outsider because I don't understand why you, if you want something, you wouldn't just make a plan and go and get it. Um, and it's really none of my business, you know? So I'm really having to learn that. But it does make me feel other, alone in my own family, you know, or the area that I grew up. And, um, but it's, it's a, it's sort of the same result coming from a different circumstance, I guess. Um, my mother, I think, always sort of took pride in the fact that I was different. Um, I also cultivated being different because I kind of loved the attention, I think. And maybe that comes from being an only child mm. um, or being like first in the space with the new designer jeans or something. I just was desperate to be that person. And um, really got a high off of the attention. Um, but there's all kinds of strange things going on there. But I still want to dive into more of the nuts and bolts of Caroline. I can you sort of talk through? And I, I, this isn't in, this isn't me asking you to go through your resume, but you're a woman in tech. Mm -hmm. I know you haven't always been or where you started your degree is actually in Native American studies and you have I, I know a little bit about your connection to the Native American community in Seattle and you're, you're wearing uh, what looks like a piece of Pacific Northwest art on a necklace mm -hmm. I would love to hear how we got from point A to point N or Z or wherever we are now again like why are we sitting here talking today go go a little bit farther back if you would, then the fact that we both ended up at the same company. Okay, um, it's, it's it's a story. It's long uh, form. We're long story. form. Um, so, where were you born? I was born in San Diego. Okay, at the Balboa Naval Hospital on the base. Would you call yourself an Army brat? Navy. Navy brat. Yeah, we, but the typical, we moved every year. Yes. And, okay. So the, the and the Air Force stops moving you once your oldest child hits high school. Um, the Navy 
doesn't doesn't follow that same logic. So what was your father's role or his rank in the Navy? So he went in at Vietnam and when he retired, he retired as a captain. How did he and your mother meet? Uh, That is a hilarious story because um, apparently they um, so my mother had come back to the Netherlands Let's stop, let's stop there. So is your is your mother is Dutch or half Dutch? Or? My mother was Dutch and she but she was born in Indonesia. So she did not come to the Netherlands until 1952. And so she was born in Indonesia because her father, Dutch father was working there. Or? So my opa was born in Groningen. So opa is the Dutch word for grandfather. And uh, so your maternal grandfather. My maternal grandfather. Mm-hmm. And there was only enough money for one boy to go to school. And opa had a brother who was smarter than he was. So opa decided he was going to sea. And so he went and he signed up to go to sea. And in one of the crossing and the, the crossings, he met my grandmother, my oma, who was tra- being sent from Indonesia to the Netherlands for school. and But her older sister... So was little, she Indonesian? She was born in Indonesia, and there's an Indonesian, like through her mother, and, and that's Indonesian. So there's um, you have some Indonesian DNA? I do. Okay. Yeah. And so this would have been in like 30s, 40s, they, 50s? They, was, they, they were born in 1908 and 1911, respectively. So this would have been right around uh, 1930. 1930 and and how is it that you have so easily memorized the year your grandparents were born because where we come from is part of who we are okay and so they on the crossing opa was immediately in love with oma but her sisters were like you're not good enough you're a farm boy you are uh at the bottom rung of this sailing this steamship because it's steam in those days so no so he stayed writing. Was to she her. in love with him, or with the sisters she was, trying to keep them separated? She was or? interested enough that she got the address of the school where she was going to, got it to him, and they wrote. Wow! And they he then continued to work his way up. To he taught himself navigation and learned to say all these things, and eventually he was a lieutenant. And then that made it a slightly different story because then my Oma was returning to Indonesia from out of the Netherlands and a lieutenant was something different than a sailor. So they got, they were given permission to marry. They got married. By whom? uh, By her father because my Oma was Catholic and her mother had died in childbed with the uh, with her the fifth brother so she didn't know her mother she didn't know her wow. mother and she was blamed for the death of her mother because her father you know, couldn't process he never remarried and he blamed his children for the death of their mother and um so she grew up in a household with a lot of yeah physical and mental abuse and not good parenting and but she was constantly always the butterfly which is of course also a coping mechanism so my opa and oma get so what do you mean by butterfly um she could come into a room and everyone would gravitate to her 
and she wouldn't do anything to like attract the attention she would just be there everyone was drawn to her that sounds like you um everyone's drawn to you when you walk into a room but let's keep going. Okay, that makes me a little uncomfortable, but I'll just name that. You and go just on. can't stand compliments, so just, I don't that, like don't, it, I don't like attention. That's don't think where... of it as attention or compliment. Just think of it as a fact. But okay, right. move. still uh, <laughs> just keep practice going. saying Sorry. thank you and keep going. Yes, keep going. So okay. in uh, 1940, my my mother was born, and uh, Japan invaded Indonesia, and from the beginning, uh, my mother and her mother and her older brother by two years, they were interned in a Japanese camp. You're kidding me. Uh, in wow. Indonesia. And my opa, because um, the maritime, the merchant marine, was called up to active duty. Um, his ship was taken prisoner, and he was interned in another camp. This is really an untold story. So for five years, until the liberation of, or the surrender of Japan, um, to the U.S. and other powers, my that generation of my family lived in the camps, and it got progressively worse. As of course, as the the more the war went on, I mean, the living conditions got worse. Yes, or? and and also the fear, and and also the the what do we do? Um, one of the things that I discovered later on is that actually, bef and this is where you get a total conflict over who you are as a person, the, if the bombs had not been dropped on Nagasaki, the bomb had not been dropped, the, if the U.S. had not dropped the atomic bombs, the Japanese had already had plans because they knew they were losing the war. And they did not want the evidence to come out of what had been done. Had plans in August, before uh, around the middle of August, to close up all of the camps at night, to lock everyone in, and to set everything on fire. Oh my God. If that had happened, I wouldn't be here today. Mm -hmm. But then knowing that you're here today in relation to... You're, on, you're here because the United States made a decision to drop not one but two bombs on tons of innocent people as well. This is, the movie Oppenheimer was a, a rebel, an experience. Let's just put it that way with me watching it. Mm. But I digress. So after the liberation uh, came the movement for Indonesian independence and the conflict that came there because the Dutch were not ready to give that up and... Um, in 1952, uh, the Red Cross rounded up people who were technically Dutch and said, you are refugees. You do not belong in Indonesia because Indonesia is independent. You are going to the Netherlands. So that ship comes sailing into the, into the harbor of Rotterdam with my mother, her father and mother and her brother. And she had never seen the Netherlands. She had no idea what the Netherlands was. And they were put on uh, little trucks and sent to wherever you had family. And so they were sent to my grandfather's mother in the north in Groningen because they had a house. And so there was a housing shortage, of course, after the war, after the occupation here. And so it was like everybody was kind of bunking in wherever. And so my mother tell, said that she got out of the truck and there's the whole village just standing there because it's a village 
And there's this woman that she has never seen before who holds out her hands and says, Marika, come here. Mm. And that was her grandmother. Oh. And she said that was the first time she had ever felt safe. Mm. And so, um, anyway, my mother stays in the Netherlands until she's about 18 because she's figured out the Netherlands is too small for her. And she goes on to join, she goes to Paris and then she joins the Dutch Foreign Service on a whim because she wants to keep traveling and see the world. And she gets stationed at the embassies in Washington, D.C. And apparently she and my father don't know each other then, but they end up later on, they compared parties that they had been to and they had been at the same parties, like their orbit was already crossing. But they didn't know each other. So my mother gets comes back to the Netherlands and she's put on a temporary position in The Hague for the Admiralty. And she's there and she's like, it's around Christmas. And she's like, <laughs> and my father has to report because he's a exchange soldier or exchange military and so he comes so in. caroline is putting that with hand quotes so yeah, what is that is an exchange but what is that sort mean? of like here's this awkward dude that is a guest in our country we don't really know what to do with him so let him go report in by the admiral and they'll figure they'll figure something out so there's there's like no real sort of it's not like he's coming with a group it's not like they came with a ship it's just kind of like here's this rando you know random guy with big thick glasses and so my mother is serving as the fill-in uh administrative person for the admiral and there is this so that m my dad comes in and he sits in the office because he's supposed to report in and he sits there taking up all of this space and he keeps trying to talk to my mother and my mother is like oh, i have a job to do leave me alone what a weirdo you know i don't want it the Admiral, for whatever reason, comes out, meets my father, takes a shine to my father. And it happens to be in this period of the year, the holiday season. He says to my mother, Miss Mesker, will you uh, pick up Lieutenant Williams tomorrow and bring him to the, the Christmas party that we are having? And my, because my mother had a driver's license and a car, which was very unusual for that time. And my mother looks at him and she's like, do I, do I have to? <laughs> it's not, not looking forward to this. And he's like, yes, because, you know, he's here. He's away from family. The least we can do is show him, you know, the hospitality and, and, you know. And so my mother is like, okay, fine. You know, and so the next day she picks up my father from the boarding house that he's staying at. She brings him to the hotel party or to the embassy party or to the admiralty party and does her level best to stay away from him was nothing to do with this guy thinks he's the biggest dork on the planet my father sees that a little differently and so he she he says well can you know so when she gives him a ride back to the boarding house he asks her for a date and she says no it's like no don't think so i'm not available you know very busy and he said well can i have your phone number and she couldn't figure out how to get out of that. So she gives him somebody, a made-up phone number. So little changes throughout the decade. Exactly, right? <laughs> this is late 60s. Mm -hmm. Yeah, late 60s. And she gives him 
uh, somebody else's phone number and she thinks I'm done never see that guy again and goes on with the rest of her her career and her life until she's at home one day and the phone rings and my opa went and answered the phone and he comes back into the living room and he said there's an American on the line for you and my mother's like what she's like oh, I'm not here I don't want to talk to me he's like no 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 I he apparently went he did ask me a lot of questions if this was the house of Marika Mesker and described you I think he does want to talk to you so you know you need to talk to him so my mother goes and talked to him. My father had finally, what he had done is he had puzzled out all of the different combinations of the phone number and dialed every single one. Wow. Looking for Mariah Mesker. So they went on a date. My mother ignores him. And in the middle of it, she comes back into the conversation and he's talking about her moving to San Diego. And she's like, what? And he's like, oh yeah, you know, once we're married, my home port will be there. And, da, 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 da. and she's like, oh, I'm not marrying you. <laughs> I'm just here because I couldn't get out of a date with you. And over the next three, my father then gets, leaves the Netherlands and does a tour of uh, of Vietnam and proceeds to write my mother almost every week and send flowers every week, which in that time was a huge, huge expense. And my parents had an initial relationship by mail. And then somehow, like mold, perhaps, he grew on her and she ended up marrying him. <laughs> like and then, mold. Yeah. And, and then she moved to the United States because, yeah, my dad's next home port was San Diego. Do you think she fell in love? She capitulated? I mean, of course, in this day and age, we'd be like, we have to arrest that man. He's stalking her. He's harassing her. I mean, y- y- you know. <laughs> there, <laughs> I think... Um, well, my parents didn't stay married, so there's always that. I think there's a couple of things. I think the letter writing, I, I've gone back and I've looked at a lot of Did, those letters. Because she wrote back, right? She wrote back. Yeah. And I've gone back and looked, and that was really valuable to you be able to do that. You have the letters still? I have them. Wow. Um, and I first saw them after she passed. So uh, they were a link to how things were in the beginning, right? Because as, as people grow and, you know, we get stories and, and experiences, we don't, we don't, we never had the, we never had the view of what it was like before we were there. And, and then as people move away from each other, move towards divorce, then the stories change entirely, right? So I have those letters. And reading them, I was like kind of, okay, it was like the awkward sort of cringe moments also because you're like, oh my God, it's my parents. Yeah, you yeah. know, dork festival. <laughs> um, but I think... I think there were two, th- I think a couple of things that really resonated between my parents is in this way of writing, you had to be able to communicate with words because there was no distraction, right? You had, there wasn't, you couldn't send a video, you couldn't send a TikTok film, you couldn't send an emoji. It was all words. So I think that that gave them that space over those years that my father was serving in the Pacific, gave them that time to see, to learn to know each other without all of the other distractions of what the world around you thinks, you know, all the things that you're filling it with. And I think the second thing that united them is both of my parents were outcasts. 
And I think they were both, I think they recognized that in each other. And so then it was like two nerds falling in love, you know, or, or that sort of like, we don't fit anywhere. So maybe we fit together. Um, I think, so I do believe in the beginning. Absolutely. Yes. They, I mean, not in the beginning when they met, but over the course of the correspondence and before we arrived, they definitely were in love with each other. And then the kids came along and screwed everything up. Well, you know, <laughs> I used to tell my mother, um, my life was perfect until the 6th of February, 1976, when the twins were born. And then I stopped being an only child, mm. you know, um, and of course, it's difficult in, in a military, you know, when you're when your spouse is six to nine months of the year deployed and you don't have Wi-Fi or Facebook, I mean, you don't have those methods of communication. So also, if there are things you live too totally separate lives right and then suddenly the ship comes home and there's this big fanfare and we all have to be dressed in our best and meet the meet it at the pier but then we get this guy who wears like super thick glasses who suddenly thinks he's like the disciplinarian and the boss and we're like who the hell are you you know i mean who is this you know so i think it, um, being a military spouse is an exceptionally difficult partnership and I think that it also doesn't teach you, look, if there's something that is a problem before somebody goes away and then you have a six month gap before you're going to be able to talk about it, you don't talk about it anymore because six months have passed and there's all different stuff going on. Um, my mother did say later on, she said that mother nature's, she would have been fine staying single, but she really felt these crazy hormones to have children and my mother actually I was when I was when she, I was born she was 33 so from for a woman in the 70s that was quite quite late right and then you know and then she had three kids after I have three brothers so there were three after me um but she was already considered quite sort of advanced in her age because she had a career you know she wasn't waiting she wasn't she had made a choice to have a career because in those years as a woman you did have to choose you know, at the moment it, you got engaged, especially also here in the Netherlands, you got a letter saying, congratulations on your engagement. Good luck with your wedding. We'll send you a gift and you are officially fired as of X amount of day because you're taking up a job. You don't need to have a job anymore. You have a breadwinner. So I think for a lot of women in that generation and even the generation, we we don't understand necessarily always their choices because they weren't, because they seemed foreign to us, but those were the choices that society was making for them. This is such an important topic for me, historically, something that m my mother and I talk about a lot. Um, she said, you know, because my mom, there were like two types of young people in the late 60s. There were the hippies, and then there were the more like mad men type women. And she said, you know, I think people think that everybody in the 60s was a hippie but it wasn't it was the minority of us and my mother was more of like the hippie side and she said I said to her I I appreciate your generation of women so much because in one generation you went from having almost no choice to me um never thinking that I had anything but choice 
and then the generation coming after me never has to think about it at all. I mean, of course, there are still many challenges, but in terms of op- job opportunities. And she said, you know, Beth, it's so much worse than that. Um, she said, of course, when I was growing up, your choices were, you know, nurse, secretary, teacher. Um, she, my mother was a surgical nurse. She wanted to be an advertising executive. She's just very creative, very funny. She would have been brilliant. She was told, you know, oh, honey, you'll never, you'll never survive at the University of Michigan. Go to state, you know. And she didn't have the self-confidence to defy that opinion. And and um, guess who went to the University of Michigan? My father. Mm-hmm. Um, anyway, but she said, you know, we weren't allowed to participate in sports. Like there were no sports for us, for women. When we were in college, we had to dress for dinner. You couldn't just show up. What She's like, I don't think that people really understand how restrictive it was. That's been forgotten. And so these women in this generation, I'm like, this is like the lasting legacy of the 60s is the women's liberation movement because, you know, African-Americans are still really struggling. There's all sorts of societal issues, but that was a huge step forward for women, I think. It was, and it wasn't that long ago, which Mm -mm. is frustrating to think about. Mm -hmm. And the work is absolutely not done. Oh, God, no. And that is where... I mean, we're I know, going backwards. <laughs> so. Yeah, I know my mother had an engineering brain. The fact that my brother Cedric is a brilliant engineer doesn't come from my father's side. It comes no. from my mother's side. And I remember when he finally finished studying engineering, my mom was super excited. because She was like, finally, I'll have an engineer at my beck and call that I can give all of my ideas to and he can build them into prototypes. Then she was deeply disillusioned to discover that my brother Cedric was exactly the engineer's type engineer where he he only worked with certainty you know his, mm-hmm. his he didn't have the and he doesn't he he likes to build things and he likes to figure out how to solve the problems but he wasn't willing to he doesn't have the sort of personality that takes the experimental risk the the inventor's mindset He's not an inventor, that my mother yeah. had mm. right and I remember because <laughs> she was like looking at me she's like what is the point and i remember when i got my degree finally she's sitting in husky stadium and she comes up to me afterwards and she goes i noticed that there were only three women getting a phd in nanotechnology (laughs) i'm like okay and she goes yeah um so i think you should consider you know that should be your next step because there were only three of them and i'm like what and she's like well yeah i mean you've got this one now so you know sort of like on with it and this i looked at your her. mother sitting in the cafe in italy going wait a minute there aren't enough nanotechnologists here i have to get going let's get out of this cafe right now <laughs> exactly and so, <laughs> and so i i looked at her and i said mom i said you seem to have plenty of time on your hands why don't you go get your phd in nanotechnology because you know it's taken me 18 years to get my bachelor's and i think it's going to take me a little <laughs> longer before i get a phd in something that i don't even know what it is at this moment but it's it's sort of like and that is something that, you know, my mother incorporated in, and I think it's also why it's so important to me is that lifelong learning up until four months before she passed, when she got the diagnosis, she was going every Saturday loading up her Volkswagen van again with a, a, my favorite armchair, which I was not allowed to look at into the van again. And she would take the ferry over to Bremerton where she would go to the reupholstering workshop on Saturdays, learn to reupholster your own furniture. My mother 
was 72 at wow. this point. I love it. Right? And yeah. she was reupholstering the chair in disco purple because my cats at the time had clawed it pretty well. And she was constant. There was, while she may not have had the path to the formal education, there was nothing that she would let stand in her way in acquiring to knowledge. When, I mean, if she wanted to know something about construction or anything, she would go to the Home Depot 18 days in a row to ask her questions to the point that people were like, oh, there she comes again, you know, the, and, and my mother was always, always learning. There were so many in part of her own experience with what happened after the divorce and financially she was committed, so committed to all of us understand being able to have our own escape, right? Our own funds, our own, our own, that we would never be in that situation. So she taught herself all about the markets. At 23, 24, 25 years old, my mother is telling me that on my $6 an hour job, that I need to be putting away money every month to invest. And I found like, it was, did you do it? Yes, I did. And oh. that's actually what gave me the startup capital for the first three wow. years of the company. And I didn't know at 20 that or 23, 24, that I would be doing this at that stage. But that's actually because my mother drum and she said, it doesn't matter how much it is every month, every month, learn to do this, do, learn, do take the risks, learn to, and this is all self-taught. And there were, she would write down and she would follow the trades. Like she would write down, forget the computer. She would write down the, the movements of the stocks that she was Make sure you're talking into the mic. on paper constantly, you know, and you would find all of these notes everywhere with all of these ticker symbols and, 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 and positions. And, and just, she was self-taught and she was good at it, you know? And so that, that quest for that, constantly learning that's something that I I know where I get it and what I try to make possible for the people that we work with opening the access to that knowledge long after the doors to formal education may be closed to you before we turn the mics on we were having a conversation about potential seeing it in others having that imposed upon us like are you living up to your potential Caroline and maybe I can see now that that was, is it, is it a possibility that your mother was asking you that question? Did you live up to your potential with that B plus because she was never allowed to live up to the potential she knew she had? I don't know if she was aware that she had it, but I know that she chafed at the boundaries mm, and at I, the boundaries. and she hated being told like when she came to the Netherlands, young women had to go to the house house school. Mm-hmm. which is the, the housekeeping, housekeeping school. school. Home ec. Home ec. Mm-hmm. And I've seen her agendas. I also know she was expelled from school. Uh, like I said, you know, the line is short. Uh, <laughs> and I know that she was deeply, the idea that there were things that she couldn't learn or weren't for her to learn or were not accepted. I know that that frustrated her to no end. That's why she left the Netherlands, why she went to Paris. She felt that she thought that the Netherlands was too small, right? There was no room for her. Your mother went to Paris. She went to Paris and she became an au pair because she thought in Paris, Paris is France. There must be, you know, and then she discovered as a young, attractive woman that men like to pinch your bottoms. Mm -hmm. 
on the metro and they didn't treat you very well in the households that you worked in and that wasn't going to be it either so she came she ran into um a dutch person who said well uh the dutch embassy and the ministry for the foreign affairs is looking for people to work in the passport pool there's a shortage because as young women get married they have no more jobs my mother couldn't even type very well (laughs) But she was like, this has got to be better than where I'm at, you know. And so she went and she applied and they lost her typing test. So she got the job. (laughs) And that's what started her career. And then she, because she had this desire to travel and everything else, anytime they would come with a new posting to an embassy, she would say yes. Because... She wanted to be in the world. She was, and she read voraciously and she would seek out all kinds of groups. I remember even when we were younger and, you know, we were looking for a church, my mother would drop us off at churches of various denominations because it was for her, she felt if you're going to believe in something, it's up to you to be able to evaluate which belief system works best for you. And then we'll go from there because who's to say, you know, the Presbyterians know it better than the Catholics who know it better than the Christian scientists, you know? So we were exposed to this, this, this gathering of knowledge. And any time that you would say to my mother, I don't think you could learn this or it's not really for you. That was like the red flag. And so I remember the first computer I had and I told her, I said, I'm going to work. There's a computer downstairs. You can learn to use America online. Maybe you can make some friends. And I come home from night shift and there's 16 post-its on my screen. I don't know what I did and I don't know if the police are coming, but it said it was an illegal error and da 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 Of course, because it crashed in those days because it was like oh Windows 95. Your mom you know? was like the first manic pixie dream girl. So exactly. So it was just like, she was like, I don't know. She's like, but I don't know. And, and so these kinds of things, when she would run into something that she didn't know or didn't know how to get knowledge, it would, it would frustrate her because she, she wanted to learn. And that is where... And when I, that's also why I believe so strongly that people can, it's not that people can't learn. It's that we decide who gets to learn and what, Mm -hmm. and that's very much societally driven. We decide, are you worthy enough of this knowledge to be granted to you? And I don't, I don't believe in that. I believe that the knowledge should be free for the for the absorption, for the creation. That's why I think these stories and these reflections are so critical because, you know, I don't know, it was not that long ago, but my husband and his two brothers and I were all just talking about our parents and it was always the brand in my family and then in their family that our fathers were just so brilliant and we got our smarts from our fathers. But when we were thinking about it, we're like, no, our, our father, it was actually our mother's that we got all of our smarts from. And it was a total paradigm shift for me because that was never a part of like my mother's like outside looking in identity that my dad always was like the smart one. And, um, you know, again, we were talking before we turned the mics on about, um, I think your, your mother had said something to the effect of like, Carolyn, why can't you be more like the cheerleader? Mm-hmm. Did you ever 
say to your mom, mom, why can't you be more like other moms? Or was she just your muse and did you idol, idolize her or could you have thrown it back at her? Um, at that age, when she said that to me, I could not have thrown it back to her. I actually didn't become friends with my mother and appreciate the unbelievable um, force that she was until I was in my mid twenties. Mm. Um, because my mother had been our, you know, in a military family, my mother was a day to day parent and my mother was not interested in being friends with her children because that was not her job. Her job is to parent her children and raise good citizens for the future. So <laughs> my mother was strict. My mother had an accent. Um, and we had weird habits. Like we had to do our homework first. Like we had to, when we came home from school, we ate our hot meal. And then later in the evening, we ate sandwiches or whatever. There was no soda in our house. Um, we were not allowed to eat hot dogs. Uh, you know, so all of these things where, where the rest of the world was like aliens, aliens. Oh, and then when we discovered that our mother actually was an alien because she held a green card all her life in the United States, that even better, our mom really is an alien. Um, and I think that, uh, one of, so in that, so I grew up knowing that my mother was the boss, right? And, 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 and I didn't know any other way because I had friends whose mothers were much more following sort of the traditional mold. And I was used to seeing my mother with jumper cables in her hand, right? So my mother, or when the coyote was in our playhouse, my mother is the one who, you know, opened the door and tried to get it out and was not waiting for someone else to come and do it. So up a, so for a big portion of my life, I think I was sort of like afraid of my mother um, in that sense, right? Like that the, you, and it wasn't until, and and I fought with her constantly. Well, they always say that strict parents, um, it's the perfect recipe for making rebellious and sneaky and um, mischievous children. And, but my mother would like, because I've, I was actually fantastically, when I look at, when I look at my youth and my teenage years, I outwardly, I looked like trouble, right? Because of my appearance. Um, I had a job at the library. I had really good grades. I had perfect attendance. I didn't drink. I didn't smoke. I didn't kiss boys or girls or anything in between. I didn't date. You know, I just looked like a weirdo with my music taste and my t-shirts and my outward appearance. And, but I was very responsible and I was doing, I was actually doing all of the sort of, I was like a goody two shoes except for how I looked. And, um, and that came because, you know, my mother had really strict expectations for, for how you contribute to a family. And then when I got to college, it kind of went a little sideways. And um, and when I got expelled from college, it went even more slightly sideways. And then in when I went to work, because school was no longer an option, and my mother and I were once again working side by side because I had three younger brothers who were under 18 and, uh, you know, the roof needs to stay over their head and everything else. At that point, I started realizing that my mother was not my enemy, mm. that my mother was actually the one who was always there for us. 
and the fact that she was always there for us and the fact that she was strict were exact signs of being it's so easy to be the good time parent or the good time in flyer and cool mom it's yeah yeah, it's the day-to-day dealing with the 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 dirty socks and everything else mom is a whole different story and i learned in the process of my parents divorce um i learned so much about my mother and her strength and my relationship with her that i went from being like i don't I don't even, I don't know what to do. I don't want to be, you're, we're not close at all. That my mother became my best friend. She's also, which I'm really grateful that I had that gift um, of that time with her in that change. But it was not what I expected and not how I spent the first 22 years, 23 years of my life being like, oh God. I'm so embarrassed, you know, I have this mom who's super strict and, you know, can't do all of these things. But actually, my mother was my greatest champion. So, um, let's fill in some gaps in this incredible story. So, um, so you were born in San Diego. Mm-hmm. Um and I want to I want to fill in the gaps from San Diego to Seattle and everything in between. Your parents' divorce. Um, you're a Navy brat. Mm-hmm. So, did you live in like a compound of other Navy brats? Like dad being gone all the way to that was that normal, or were you like the only Navy brat in school, or what? What was that situation? It, it depended. Well, two things. My parents were unified on education. That how important it was. My mother generally felt that American schools were for slackers compared to the system that she had been in, um, even with the House Howard Licks School. And my dad, um, my dad put himself through college. He had a degree in printing technology. And then he went on later to get his MBA from Harvard in the middle of his career. So for my parents, education was everything. So in the beginning, when we, when I was, when it was the perfect world and I was the only child, um, we did live on base housing to a degree. And then again, when my dad was homeported in Mayport, we lived on base um, because he, he was commander of the ship. But all the rest of the places, my parents would find the house in the best school district. And that's what they would aim for. Because in the U.S., so much zip code by zip code, you know, you know how it changes. And they were, they didn't care where we lived as long as we had access to the best public schools. So most often, we were not in neighborhoods with a lot of military families. We would be the only one, which made it even stranger for people because, you know, their mom and dads come home every night. And my mom has a husband that comes home every six months or every nine months. And if my dad was there for birthdays, he wouldn't be there for Christmas and, and, and vice versa. And sometimes things happen like he would go out to sea for an exercise that happened during one of the Gulf conflicts that he went to sea for what was supposed to be a week. And they ended up not coming back for more than nine months because the ship was activated while they were there. So 
we were always the outsider, even even on the Navy base, because there's also then a, a definite hierarchy and a division between um, enlisted sailors and officers and their families and where they live on base, and also even in school. So, and for my parents, they were not willing to accept substandard education for us at all. And so we were really fortunate actually that even though we changed schools almost every year, or at least I did, um, because I'm the oldest, the schools that we went to were the best the public school system in that area had to offer. And my parents But you moved every year. Yeah. And so when you moved every year, are you moving all over the country? Are you going yeah. back? Okay, so, so where else so did you live? Basically, so we lived in Long Beach, we lived in Massachusetts, we lived in Florida, we lived in Virginia more than once. So every time, the way it works in the Navy is you either go to, you know, your home, every ship, like here in the Netherlands, there's one Navy base, Den Helder, you know, but in the United States, you could be assigned to a yard, which like Philadelphia has a yard, Long Beach has a yard. You know, you could be assigned to um, even there's even Navy bases like in Idaho, hmm. you know, so it was wherever the way they looked at it is wherever my dad's talents would be of the most use. That is where he would get sent to and the family. And then we would follow the rhythm where you pack up your you never really unpack. Um, and then the moving van comes and everything that goes in the moving van goes in the moving van and you have your, your sailor's kit bag, which is about this big, same bag that the sailors get. And so it's that, about two feet wide. The, the, if even, mm-hmm. and that's where all your stuff has to go in that goes with you in the van that goes across country. Cause we didn't fly too expensive with a family of six. We went it by car and with the dog and the bunnies and you know and then and and then you had the responsibility of sitting up front and keeping my dad awake because my dad just wanted to drive like straight through and my mom would be the one who would be like no there's a national park that we're passing we need to stop there we need to go and do that so we were used to being uprooted and um and in a way i mean in your childhood that that can make things difficult um but it's also actually when i think about it now it's one of the best experiences i could have had because it also people sometimes say to me why does why 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 does it not bother you what people think about you and i'm like well if you're always the new kid every you're never going to fit in right everybody's going to have an opinion you don't wear the right clothes you don't listen to the right music because what they do in california is different than what they do in dc so you have to like yourself and you have to know who you are because you don't know what you're going to run into in the next place. Right? Did, you, did you ever find your tribe as a kid? The other kids with the Joey Ramone t-shirts or the, or the pink mohawk? I managed or? to find them in every place I went to. Mm-hmm. Right? I And I think that's also... Um, somebody has said to me recently that one of the reasons that they think that I am the type of person that just grabs people and pulls them in is because I know what it feels like to be outside. And so like, I am an introvert. Like you wouldn't, I am, I am a complete and total introvert. But if I go somewhere and I see somebody that is sitting alone or outside of the group, 
I will go to that person. Same. Totally. You know, not because I'm like really like the social mm-hmm. contact, but because I know I don't want anyone to feel excluded. And that I think that comes that also comes from it making that space and room for everyone. And also knowing that it doesn't really matter what other people think of you because you're the one that will have to be responsible for yourself today, tomorrow, and after tomorrow. Other people in your life are passing, right? You are the one who is with yourself your whole life. So if you don't like yourself or respect yourself or are comfortable with yourself, it's going to be a difficult haul. Mm-hmm. I still want to get into filling the gaps, but mm-hmm. to, um, to to expand on that concept for a second, something that I've been thinking about and I'll bring up in future podcasts is this idea of, of hero worship, which I have imprinted on other people. I would say I do it to you a little bit. And um, I just admire, I just sort of really cling to people who have attributes that I really admire that I don't have. There's a fascination there, even like negative ones. I'm like, you are like this, this person on the management team is everybody gossips about this person. They're such an energy vampire. And I'm fascinated by that person because I'm like, do they even know that we just so I feel so bad for them in a way, even if they're in a position of power. But on the other side, I do tend to hero worship people. And now that I am a CEO and founder, I'm starting to experience a little bit of hero worship being directed at me. And it's so odd. I'm like, I'm just a, I'm just Beth. I'm just like a regular person. Like, please don't, please don't do that. Don't, don't put me on a pedestal. But at the same time, again, talking about this before the mics went on, there's like the, the talisman of Beth, the totem of Beth, the, the, the mannequin CEO that I kind of take out of myself and put over in the corner. I'm like, that's what's receiving the hero worship. And that if that CEO, Beth Massa or founder is inspiring people or teaching people, um, then that's great. She's doing a, an important job there. But I think that when it cut, when it's flinged at you, you, I see you get very uncomfortable with it. You'll, you'll be very, you say it, but man, Caroline, you are, you really like when you, talk the air in a room full of people gets really still because you say things in a way not only that people have never heard it before but you just sort of remove the fog from an issue because you're so deep into it like you when we were at this event in in Rotterdam I guess what a month ago or something You, there was a panel discussion and you stood up and you're like, okay, this conversation is, it wasn't necessarily going in the wrong direction, but like, you, those are very important that you guys aren't addressing and here it is. Mm-hmm. And everybody in the room was like, wow, you know, including me. Um, I've just never really had anybody in my orbit. And maybe because my life is too sheltered or I need to expand my, my, you know, my DEI world, we all do, that brings that into a room the way you do. Whoa, I'm super uncomfortable right I now. I know, um, I'm sorry. No, but... it's okay. Think, um, it's a process. I will mm-hmm. say I have the same thing you do. I have competency crushes. 
That's what I call competency crushes. You know, when you get that giddy feeling inside, like you see somebody that you really like, and you know, we all remember going back to our teenage years or yesterday, depending, you know, where you see somebody who, for some degree or another, just really makes you aware and hypersensitive. And for me, it's competency crushes. I have a thing for people who have knowledge that I do not have. People who are experts in their field, people who can, or people who are doing exciting things with knowledge. It's competency crushes. That's what I call them. Because at first it was like, you know, it was sort of awkward when I would follow some of my professors around at the University of Washington because I'm a grown ass woman and I have a full time job and I'm getting a bachelor's in something I I love to research and study, but I am more than 18 years older than the rest of my peers right so they're so I'm like going between classes taking the long way you know around campus to be able to walk longer with these professors with these women who are so full of this knowledge and 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 all I want to do is just so competency crushes I that's I I experience them still and I think that they're I like I think it's I think it's a reminder to me that the gift that that person has in their knowledge or in their just being, it makes me glad to be on the same planet or in the same room as them, right? That just by being there, I can, I can absorb some of that, that magical goodness. Mm. Um, I will say, I think one of my strengths is that I do ask questions and it has not always been experienced as a strength. I've had direct feedback from many times in my life that people find questionings threatening. You know, if you would ask less questions, people would like you more, you'd get further, your career path would be different, et cetera, et cetera. And, um, and even in partnerships, when I start collaborations, um, with organizations, one of the things I always check for in when I'm, hanging out with people I don't know very well yet is how open are you for questions? Because if you're not open for questions, I'm not going to do well here, no matter how much I want to support you or how much I might believe in the work that you're doing. I am a questioner and I'm a direct questioner. Um, Bjorn, who is our job skills coach and who is Dutch um, and who is quite good at asking questions. He said that I am one of the most direct and confronting people he's ever met Hmm. and he said and I was like really I'm like but you're Dutch Mm -hmm. and you're not exactly wow that's major and he goes yeah he goes but you really want to know he said and people feel that that you are asking those questions because you really want to know you're not you're not just asking them because you're trying to you're supposed to or trip them up or you are like really curious truth seeker And he said that can be, and he said that sometimes I think also why people tell you the things that they do because they understand that when you're coming at them with questions, you're not coming at them to cause them harm. You're coming at them because you want to understand. Do you agree with that? I do in that sense, because I know, um, that for a lot of people 
like my father has told me, he goes, nobody talks to me like you do. And I'm like, maybe more people should. Um, and maybe you would have, I, I think, I think people suffer more in their heads when someone doesn't challenge them. And I see this in a lot of the people that we work with in that I spend time with and people that I just meet in passing. Someone, I ask the questions because I want to know more about you and I want to understand you. And maybe by me asking the questions, I also get the benefit of learning more about something within myself. But we are connected. I see you. I want to know about you. I don't. I maybe don't want to go on vacation with you because we're very bad at vacation, or I am. I definitely don't want to go on vacation with you. But I do. I want in the moment that we are sharing together. I want to see you and you to see me, and I want it to be as as un undiluted as as possible. And I get there by asking questions. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, there's two types of questioner questioners. There's the type like you are, that's a truth seeker, that's that's searching for understanding, and then there's the other kind that is their intention is to reject you. Yeah. Welcome to the world of you know, VC mm-hmm. investment analysts. Mm-hmm. <laughs> That's the type of questioning that I face every day. Like I can already tell that you're you're just this is just a long form process of rejection. Um and yeah, I mean the first time and actually is the only time, unfortunately, so far, that I faced a panel of female investors. They invest as a group. The line of questioning was completely different. It was it was um the line of questioning was the goal was for understanding. Like I need to understand the business model or I need to understand how this infrastructure works as whereas like the normal type of questioning I would get was like there, the question, the intention of the question is to, is to make the conclusion that, um, you know, my business model is faulty or something like that. Um, yeah. So I hope that, so I hope that people are confronted with your line of questioning, feel the intention behind it. I'm sure that they do, but if they don't, that's also very interesting. Well, I think that um, I think that that depends on where somebody else sits. Exactly. And I think what I find interesting is in the the people that would technically be the ones that we would say have the least ability or the least willingness to answer questions because they are, you know, pick your label that you want to put on them unemployed or, uh, forced migration or whatever. Pick your label neurodivergent. Who cares? Go ahead. Uh, I got lots of stickers. Um, those in the conversations that I have with people that we have, as a society sort of put into those categories, those are actually the ones where the questions go the furthest and the deepest. Mm -hmm. And the dialogue is bi-directional because often 
this is the first time somebody's asking them questions in this kind of space with this curiosity, with this desire to know more, with this desire to understand. And I find that the people who are less likely to be fond of the way I ask questions, shall we say, are the ones who are who are the most protected or who have the most sort of sense of of this is how it should be or this is this is my role or this is my title or this is my hierarchy or my lived experience and you must be doing that thing and that's one of the reasons where what I why I love to have the unexpected conversation the unexpected questions we played a game on Thursday of power skills graduation called moral conflict where um, everybody has a board and everybody has a question and you ask the question like uh, who is most likely to drop their phone in the toilet and then everybody has four seconds to write the name and we turn and, and show it and it's a good way of not only being open with each other right because you can't really you know people have the struggle they're like oh I don't want to name that person you know what if it it's a good way to be open with each other and foster that dialogue and also to to examine different ways of uh, being with each other and one of the questions was who is the person most likely to have an argument with a stranger on the street and I won that one I was did anybody write down anyone else's name yes oh really and and because you're not allowed to write down your own name no and so the young the other young the young person um who was also selected what is interesting is the two of us have a relationship that ideology wise we are 180 degrees different from each other and when I first learned uh, when I first met him you know the first couple of days the first his remarks were you know who he pays attention to who he's influenced by the sort of things and it was a knee-jerk reaction in myself to say, oh my God, what do I do with this young person? Because those messages that he's listening to are absolutely the wrong ones, right? But I knew that if I went that way, I would just shut him down and shut him out. So I started by asking questions with him and asking him not questions to attack, but like, okay, but if that applies to men, Shouldn't it also apply to women? And then when I would get answers like, well, women always get a special way out or they get special treatment or da da da. And I said, okay, can you give me some examples of that? Because I'm curious. And he didn't have the answer on the fly. I said, that's okay. You don't, we don't have to have, you can come back to me with those things. You can come back to me with those answers. And part of our dial, so we were both selected to be the one most likely to have an argument with somebody on the street. And we were both like, would it really be an argument? Or would it be a discussion? Because we couldn't just we couldn't just let somebody say something and not ask the question. And and I told him because I looked at him, I said, you know, I'm still waiting on answers for questions I asked you the first day we met. And he's like, I know, I'm getting there, I'm getting to them. But that's where you um, you see that you you create, you make a choice. Do I want to go on the hard connection? You know, go for the hard connection, or do I just let it go and that's the yeah that's the choice that people make every day yeah okay let's keep going with your childhood story um 
I'm still trying to picture this. So, so on the one hand, I'm picturing, you know, these these two outsiders that are kind of building their life with very little support network. Dad's in the military. Mom is the, you know, really smart, manic, pixie dream girl, but also disciplinarian. And then on the other hand, I'm picturing something something that's closer to like a Steve Jobs origin where you've got this sort of distant, like physically distant, but brilliant father, the kind of bohemian mother. And it's more of a like, I don't know, like proto upper middle class Silicon Valley kind of situation because your dad went to Harvard. I know neither one of them. I'm just trying to picture like what your living room looked like or did you all have your own bedrooms? or? No. No, you know, like what was the, the the home life like? I know you were moving a lot, but inside the house, yeah. So and so, talk me through that, and then let's try. Let's get through. You know, you're you're moving every year. I want to get to like your connection, your roots in the Pacific Northwest, mm, okay. and then I want to talk about how you got kicked out of school and why you picked that major that you picked. So talk me through that. Okay. So first of all, my dad went to Harvard as an exception because they had he te- he had applied after RIT but he went to Vietnam and so he was not eligible to go for it my dad um comes from Kentucky and my granny was on the first women's basketball team of Eastern Kentucky and she was 5 foot 2 wow my grandpa was almost 7 feet but my granny was 5 foot 2 and played basketball And then they discovered actually that she had married my grandpa and nobody knew because she wanted to get an education. So then she got pulled out because married women could not get an education. So, and in, and there was no work in Kentucky outside of the mines. So my grandpa joined the surveying service, the geological service and went everywhere to go be a surveyor. My dad was born in 46 in Kentucky. And, um, so my parents definitely don't fit any of the sort of, yeah, no, I mean, all the furniture, my mother, all of the furniture that almost that I have in my house now is the furniture that my Oma and Opa bought in the mid fifties when Swedish furniture was the only furniture you could get because Sweden had not been occupied by the Nazis. So Sweden still had their industry. And so all of the, before Ikea, all of the furniture, and I still have that furniture. It's, it's, so everything in my house has a memory or is, I have, I have, that's the reason I learned to play the banjo was because my roots are also in Kentucky. Um, And growing up, because we moved all the time, we actually weren't allowed to have anyone in our house because we had such a mismatch of furniture of boxes. And it was like totally like just not done, you know? So everything, everything was sort of like on the fly, you know, nothing matches. And to this day, I still can't handle, if you come into our house now, you could see exactly which pieces of furniture belong to my partner because everything matches. She's very precision oriented. It all needs to match. And then everything around it is like my chaos for my grandparents and my mother and all of that. And it works. Um, but so growing up, we didn't, 
we we didn't have a lot because you have to move it so it doesn't what's the point um and also because the the money is just not there right uh so um so to fast forward we always lived this kind of sort of crazy lifestyle where people yeah we're not winning any home and garden awards let's just say um and when if you want to know if you want if you'd like me to fast forward and tell you how i got to the pacific northwest what had happened was um i went to college uh in 1991 and i went to a school away from home um, where was home at the time it was suburban washington dc this is crazy and <laughs> okay. uh, and i didn't get into virginia tech hmm. but i did get into drew which, where did you at what high school did you graduate from james madison in vienna for vienna, one year vienna. i was only there for one year vienna virginia Vienna, Virginia. Okay. Yeah. Not Vienna, Austria. Oh, okay. No, no. No, that would be more glamorous. Yeah. No, no. Vienna, Virginia. Mm. Um, where my youngest brother got grease poisoning in the McDonald's because he ate there so often, but this is another story. <laughs> um, so uh, my long shot school was Drew in New Jersey. And I had picked it because it was close to New York City. And I would love the Ramones. And, but my parents were not down with New York City for their 18-year-old daughter. So, well, New Jersey's close. And Drew was academically hard and it was small. I didn't think I would get in, um, but I did. But it's private school and it cost a lot of money. And I did not fit there. Not only did I not fit there, I wanted to leave and come home because stuff was really bad at home. But my parents would not budge. So are the, is the marriage really starting to fall apart yes, at this point? Yes, at this okay. point. I mean, it's been going on for a while. From about the time that I was 14, there were other parties involved. Yeah. And, you know, and it was kind of a waiting game to, okay, there we have minor children together. So uh, the reality is my dad looked at it from the analytical perspective and said, you know, child support's going to cost me a lot more multiplied by four. So we're going to kind of wait it out. Um which has all of the consequences that it then does for your family. Was there ever a time after the four of you were born where your parents lived in the same house year round? No. Okay. No, after after Rupert Rupert was born when my dad was stationed in the UK at Greenwich. So it's Cedric, Cedric, Rupert, Dylan and Rupert. Dylan. Cedric and Dylan are the twins, twins and, and Rupert's the Rupert's baby, the youngest. And yes. then Caroline. Okay. And Rupert was born in 78 and we returned to the U.S. in 1980. So from that moment forward, um, oh, and then when my dad was at Harvard, we we lived in Acton in Massachusetts and then he wasn't deployed because he was, but he was studying all the time. So he was like not really home, but for the rest of it, it was always uh, separated. And so I wanted to leave school and I wanted to go to work and I wanted to be closer to home. And my parents said, absolutely not, unacceptable, not going to happen. Why did you want to be closer to home? Because I couldn't, I felt responsible. I have three younger brothers. For the brothers. Who, I know there's not enough food at home. I know there's not enough, 
I know that it's a, my mother doesn't have a well-paying job. My mom is putting together whatever job she can, but she doesn't have a degree. You know, she hasn't, she hasn't worked outside. She's been, she's been raising children and enabling my dad's career for all these years. And now suddenly she's got to become a breadwinner. It was just, there's a downward spiral happening. There's a huge downward spiral. Mm. And my parents, and then there's a downward spiral with me at school. And, um, you know, up until this time I'd been, you know, super good kid, except for, you know, my outward appearance. But then I discover what a lot of kids do. And I say, okay, if you're not going to let me go home, I'm going to find a way to get home. So I start misbehaving. Do you want to get into that a little? Um, let's just say I played rugby and that doesn't uh, sound like misbehaving well if you think about the culture that goes around rugby um and all you know and Is i was like under drinking eight, in the hot tub after the matches not even in the hot tub i would just i mean <laughs> i would just go and and you know i would i would just i discovered alcohol i discovered you know all of this stuff which on a small methodist campus you would be surprised i was going to new york on a regular basis you know i was doing everything in my power to do i was criticizing the school administration on one hand on my work study job i'm being asked to write the christmas cards for the president of the university and on the other hand i'm criticizing when the board comes because they're against the uh, plan b pill so I'm not making friends and I'm cutting class and I'm, you know, I'm not doing anything. All right. Well, you're not robbing banks, Caroline. You're just <coughs> partying pretty hard. Well, <laughs> I'm trying to get myself thrown out. Mm. And um, did you know that at the time? Or Yes. Okay. Because I had it said. It wasn't a subconscious thing. It no, was a strategy. I had said, I want to come home. I want to stop going to Drew because it's the tuition was $26,000 a year in that time. And I was on student aid, uh, financial aid. And then I was my dad was teaching me a lesson about self-sufficiency so he did not fill out my financial aid forms so then i get called in and said you need to come up with x amount of money in order to stay or you're out and um (coughs) so all of these things spiral and then i get put on academic probation because of my performance probation in general so the third semester and final semester of your freshman year of the uh, no of my entire college career to this point so it's the first semester then of my sophomore year okay i do absolutely nothing that is related to academics i am booking bands i am working i am doing everything but and i'm doing everything in my power to irritate the administration so that they will make this decision i am not showing up for any of my classes knowing that if I don't have grades at a certain level, I'm out. It works. Uh, in December, before this, as the semester closes, a letter comes home. It says, you are not welcome for spring semester. You have not, you are done. Um, and also in the letter was, good luck. We hope you can find an institution that suits you better. Cool. I got what I wanted. Yeah. I'm at home. I go to work. Mm. I start going to work right away. I'm living at home. I'm, my mom and I are doing everything that's required to do to create a stable environment for my brothers who do not appreciate it and have their own trauma because this is what happens in families that are divorcing right it's never just about the parents it's about everyone in the family and so 
And then I try a couple years later to go to community college at night around a full-time job and it doesn't really go anywhere. And then I get a job and then I have multiple jobs. So I always have more than one job at a time. And then my brothers are ready to go to school. So mission accomplished yet to college. They're finally old enough to go to college. And, um, I decide I am done with the Washington DC area. And I'm working for United Airlines at this time. That's my primary job. And I go into work and I start filling out transfer forms anywhere United flies. And I'm like, all right, well, whichever city comes back first is the one that I'm going to go to. So I get a call on a Wednesday from my supervisor and he's like, I hear you've been filling out transfer forms. I'm like, yep. And he's like, well, Chicago just called and Seattle has an opening, but you have to be there by Monday. Today was Wednesday. (laughs) I was like, can I call you back tomorrow with a decision? He goes, no, you have till 430 this afternoon, central time, because I have to process the paperwork. I go home. I tell my mom and she's like, well, I guess you're going to Seattle. And did she know you were looking for a transfer? She, what is interesting is years ago, my parents had been to Washington state because my dad had to go to the yard uh, at Bremerton and my parents had been driving around the UW and thought this is the place for Caroline to go to. This would be an ideal place. And they came back telling me this and I was like, I'm not going anywhere that my parents think is cool. Are you nuts? I got a degree from the University of Washington many, many years later. But that's the the circle. Right? We're gonna get there. So keep and going. so um, she didn't know, but she knew I. She, but I wanted. My brothers were not doing what they needed to do to take that next step to go to school, and my mom was supporting them. They were still living at home, and they were only the situation was just still worse. And I wanted to create. I thought if I go and I move and I could start a new life there I can pull mom and I could pull ninja or dog and the bunnies and we could get out we don't have to worry anymore that we're going to run into dad or his new family somewhere we'll be free and that was kind of what was feeding through my head so I go to Seattle you show up I have a job and reservations um and a year that was in uh 96 And in 97, I managed to convince my mother to come. And she arrives on July 4th, 1997. I pick her up at SeaTac with Ninja, or Akita, and the bunny. And we go and we get uh, burritos from Taco Del Mar. Mission style burritos. Mission style burritos. Fish tacos or? Mission style burritos. (sighs) And we go and sit up by the troll in Fremont. And look out over Gasworks Park and eat these burritos. And it's the 4th of July, so there's fireworks. And my mother looks at me and she goes, I think it's very nice that they have fireworks at this day of the year every year. They don't have fireworks on my birthday. Nobody ever wants to have bir- celebrate my birthday on January 4th. <laughs> She's, July 4th is my new birthday. And from that point on, July 4th was my mother's chosen birthday and, and celebrated accordingly but that's how i got to seattle what neighborhood did you live in i lived in fremont first mm-hmm. and then I moved to ballard because ballard was cheaper and ballard was open 24 hours and i worked shift work so having a grocery store that was open in 24 hours was important and i had um and then so i worked lots of jobs 
Do you remember what month in 1996 you moved to Seattle? Uh, yes, oh. I do. I moved in August. I moved right before Bumbershoot because we had to drive cross country fast enough so that I could see Bumbershoot. So you got there one month after I did because I arrived in Seattle January 4th, 1996. Okay. One, exactly one year before your mom. Wow. Crazy. All right, keep going. So l- longer story long, mm-hmm. you know, because I didn't have a diploma, I've always uh, had multiple jobs and multiple jobs. And, and, um, so your mom came, but your brothers are still in DC. My brothers are in DC and they've actually finally gone to college. Mm-hmm. So one brother goes to George Mason, another brother goes to VMI, and the third one goes to Baylor in Texas. So they get out of the house and they have to go bl- start living their lives. And my mother is coming out of that environment, um, which she needed to. And, so everybody is in theory moving forward and you know i have my jobs stacked on each other and i load air by this time i moved out to the airport and i load airplanes instead of doing reservations um where you're one you know there's like 12 women in a pool of 300 uh ramp rats and i i work uh, I work for um, temp agencies during the day for 40 hours in other office work. And then I do other, you know, little 10 hours here, 10 hours there. So I'm working probably about 70, 80 hours a week. And then 9-11 happens. And um, we get called and said, don't come in to work today because no planes are flying. So you have authorized no pay. Okay. Uh, we go back in that following weekend where they start flying aircraft only with personnel and freight and we load the planes up and send them out because at this point nobody knows where the rest of the um if there's going to be more terrorism or what have you and after that weekend they give us our our layoff notice and they say um you have recall rights because it's union but you have no you have no job anymore we don't need you and full-timers will be called back first and part-timers will call you back if we can and who knows when that will be so in one and at that time maximum unemployment benefits were 13 weeks in the state of washington so in one day i go to losing not only a third of my income but also my health insurance and my most stable employer of the three right and i'm like i don't I don't know what I'm going to do. I don't, I don't, I, you know, and so I was like, this isn't, this, uh, this was the first realization for me, how vulnerable I was. Um, and so I start talking to somebody who's a husband of a colleague of mine who's really into computers, like early computer adoption. And th- he's like, well, you seem pretty smart, even without a degree. You should, you know, I'll sell you one of my old Why computers. Why did he- think you seemed pretty smart because i was asking him questions questions. and so he was just kind of like didn't know what to do with that and he was like you know and they were a nice older couple but he didn't wasn't it was like what do i do so he sells me me just back up just a second here because so you've achieved your goal of coming back home by getting yourself kicked out of school yes everybody now you and your mother have moved to seattle so what's the time difference between getting kicked out of school and we've moved to seattle um, Tell me that again. Ninety. I was kicked out in December of ninety-two, 
And I moved to Seattle in August of 96. Okay. So, so that's, so it's 92 to 96. That's four years. Yeah. Uh, God, our timelines are really parallel. That's strange. But I mean, the goal of getting out of school is to come back home. You got back yes. home. So, um, but that at this point now the family is spiraling. So now this part at this point of time, it's like we, we need income. So going back to school or picking up school again is not really an option at this point. No, because, yeah. okay. um, I can't afford it. Right. Right. And, okay. um, but was it always in the back of your mind? Like, Oh, you know, I'm gonna, no, I'd given it up mm-hmm. and my brothers were getting to the point of, as they progressively started graduating, it was like, so Caroline, when are you going to get a degree? You know, completely oblivious to the fact why, you know, the choices that I made, you know, and so, and I had kind of written it off. Mm. And, um, so when this person said, I'll sell you, you know, my computer, but you're gonna have to put some memory in it. Um, cause it's won't run anything otherwise. I was like, well, m- maybe computers are a way that I could get a job, one job or a more job. Cause I, I was, I was desperate to be able to work. Right. Um, because I would have lost the roof over my head and my mom didn't have the resources, the financial resources for me to fall back on. And I wasn't speaking to my father. So I fried my motherboard the first time I tried to change my RAM, which was an expensive mistake. (laughs) And then that made me go and look at the community colleges because I was like, okay, I don't have any education, but the community colleges are for people without a degree, you know, vocational, that whole you, maybe I can go there because I can't go to like the U or something like that. And sure enough, they had a hardware class on Saturdays from nine to six. And I went there, I signed up for it and I paid for it and I went into overdraft to pay for it. Um, and cause that's also another common theme, right? Access to finance, debt, all of those things. And, uh, I was the only woman and my fellow students didn't talk to me and the teacher didn't talk to me cause they were all like, nerds. I took my comp TIA exam <laughs> at the end of the thing and I passed mm-hmm. and I had put it, you know, I, I got called I think like two and a half weeks later after I had updated my monster profile <laughs> and I got called by somebody from Volt, you know, the, the temp agency. Yeah. And they said, um, we have a position for three weeks, um, supporting games and hardware where we would like to interview you for, we think you would be a good fit. And I was like, what? And they were like, yeah, um, it's, you know, it's an Issaquah, blah, blah, it's only for three weeks, but you know, you, you, you have a customer service background and you have a hardware certification. So would you like to come for an interview? And I'm like, I, okay. You know, and then I'm frantically studying before this interview, every break I can, I'm like trying to read. Cause I'm like, I don't know enough. And I go and I sit in this room on the Issaquah campus and it has smart lights, which is the first time I've ever been in a room that has sensor stuff. And I have this conversation with these two people who look really normal and it's actually an okay conversation. And at the end of it, they say, well, we, we think you'd be great for this. It's only three weeks, but we think you would, this would be, you know, you'd really be good at it. And you, you, we, we'd like to, you know, offer you a place on this team of 10 for the holiday spike. And I was like, wow. And they said, and, um, but because it's already through Volt, the, the, the agreement is already, you know, the salary, the hourly rate is already set. 
um, it's only $18 an hour. And I said, oh, okay. And I managed to like hold it together. And I was like, all right. I'm like, well, when do I start? And so that well, I go out to the parking lot and I scream because I make $6 an hour after, um, after almost, you know, this is in 2001 after almost more than six years at United, I make $6 an hour. So somebody wants to pay me $18 an hour. Oh my God. I, <laughs> I can't, I mean, suddenly it's like I could have one job. And anyway, <laughs> that moment and that access to that job that paid that. And now I'm much more cognizant of how much, you know, was being taken off the top and whatever. But at that moment in 2001, $18 an hour was a fortune to me. And that's also what has driven, stayed in the back of my head through all of these years and why we do what we do. Because it's not about getting rich. It's about people getting jobs that will pay them enough so that they can save, so that they can invest, so that they can take care of their families, so they have choices, so they have skills for today and tomorrow. And it's not, yeah, it's, and that's what, and that's the reality that in our society, tech jobs often pay better than other ones. And I want more people to be able to have that experience where they can put aside money for their future, do things with their family. They're, they're not struggling every month. Like when I watched my mom and she would be like, okay, we're, I don't know what we're going to eat today. And I don't know how I'm going to feed my kids and I have to make choices. You know, I don't, I, I want to as much as possible help others to avoid that or to get out of that. But that's how I got into tech. Without a degree in computer science, everything I've ever learned around tech is self-taught through experience, through on the job, through learning that way. But no. And then years later, I made the decision that I was never going to have that moment where I'd have either money or time together. So, and the University of Washington said to me, sorry, you cannot uh, come in as a transfer student because your credits are too old. So you either need to go back and take the SATs with the 17 year olds, or you need to go to one of the community colleges, get your AA or your AS, and then do a transfer in because Washington is a land grant university. So they have to create a separate transfer requirement for people coming from the community colleges. I was like, uh, uh, okay. Um, and so I went to school at night and I got my AA with, and, and from North, which is now called Seattle college. But, and then I transferred to the university of Washington and, you know, at the time then I was already working full time in tech and I just would be, I would just step out into the hallway at the U and take my customer calls and do my PowerPoints and well, this is how you set up a continuous build process, or this is, this is how you do a user story. And when I graduated from the U in 2009, um, 
that was where I came back to earlier where my mother was like, okay, you've got your bachelor's degree, but there's only three women who got PhDs in nanotechnology. So off you go, you know, what's next? And, um, and it's taught me, you know, when I was, when I was in the ceremony with, with my major program, I looked into the room in the, in the, in the longhouse and I said, some of you weren't even born the first time I went to college. It's taken me your lifetime to get my degree. Not everybody um, knows what a longhouse is. Ah. Um, so for Seattle's, the, the, the people that the city of Seattle, the land that Seattle is located on, belongs to are the Duwamish. And they have not received federal recognition and through all of the exploitation and things that have happened over the hundreds of years, they are marginalized in the city that they themselves is their ancestral land and their land today. And they are the stewards. A longhouse is a building where coast uh, Seattle, the Pacific Northwest people are often maritime people. So people have an image of that. Uh, America's indigenous nations, sovereign nations are all, you know, hunting the buffalo on the plains on horse but the pacific northwest people and coastal nations are often maritime based so their houses are places where the community comes and gathers and shares knowledge has ceremony builds canoes because canoes are primary uh, method of transport in those times and is generally where everything happens in the community together. And like the University of Washington now has on their campus um, a longhouse that's actually the house of knowledge, of indigenous knowledge. And it's literally a longhouse. It's literally. It's a very, it's, yeah, they're beautiful yeah. structures. And they are meant to be able to Long accommodate and be, yeah. and be open to everyone. So you started filling out all those transfer forms at American Airlines was United it? United Airlines got yourself to Seattle mm -hmm. you've got your degree now you have a tech background mm -hmm. how did you end up in the Netherlands um I lost my mom can you talk about that I can um in September of 2012 she was supposed to go to Europe uh, for here's a lifelong learning she had signed up to take an art course to learn to photograph in Rome and to draw accordingly as preparation for being a travel writer and all their six my mother had created this goal for herself that she was going to become a travel writer and she was going to go move to Ecuador with George, because I had two dogs, Henry and George, but she thought George would acclimate better to Ecuador and Spain, or the Spanish language, because he was just faster than Henry. And <laughs> she wasn't going to ask me about it. She was just, she was just like, she had made these decisions. And she'd even written to people. She'd picked out where she was going to learn Spanish and everything. She'd even written to people. She goes, I'm having some difficulty convincing my daughter that this is a good idea. So how do you, how do you, do you have any recommendations or any tips for, you know, because I was like, mom, maybe we should go and visit Ecuador first and see, you know. So anyway, we had plans that she was supposed to go uh, to Rome and then she would go to the Netherlands and I would fly and meet her there 
And then she comes to me and she says, I don't feel good and I think I need to go to the hospital. And my mother was never somebody who went to doctors or anything else. And I looked at her and I was like, this is really okay. So we went to the emergency room at Virginia Mason and on first Hill in Seattle. And, um, they admit her into the emergency room and they ask her, you know, she's like, I, she's like, I have all of this abdominal pain. I, it's, I'm supposed to travel tomorrow and I can't, I can't, you know, my mom was tough. She's like, I can't, I, I, I'm really concerned. She's like, I am drinking and, 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 and nothing is happening. And I, it's, it's, this doesn't seem right. So they go, okay, well, you know, sure. There's nothing to worry about, you know, maybe, you know, it's temporary. We'll do some scans. Um, and so, uh, they take her in the back and they do some scans and they put her on, an, you know, and they bring her back and they put her on an IV. So she's getting some fluids and she really, it looked really gray and it's like, like, like not like herself. And so, um, a couple of hours pass and, uh, and go, I stand the, the, the resident that's on duty the attending, uh, comes back in. He goes, um, he's like, he said, uh, he said, do you want to step into the hall for a second? And I said, okay. So I step into the hall and he goes, so, um, it's a really massive tumor. And, uh, yeah, I'm surprised that you didn't tell us about that. And I said, I'm sorry, what? He goes, you you don't know? I said, no. And then he was like, oh, you know, it's like, this is, this is a faux pas. Wow. So he goes, um, I have to stop saying wow, but wow. He's like, I'm going to call upstairs to the 12th floor. That's our oncology ward. And I'm going to get some of their specialists to come down here and talk to you. And then he like ran for the hills you know because he's like i mean you do you drop it so i go back in and uh you know i said to my mom i said mom they're gonna send somebody from oncology because they see something on the scans and they're gonna talk to us so they admit her and they they say that you know that's that they know why the obstruction because there's a tumor and 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 that she has cancer and and you know what do we want to do about it and so we're we go from thinking that she's leaving tomorrow for rome to suddenly she's overnight in the hospital and they're going to want to do you know we have to come up with a plan and that's how it started and uh and then a couple days later they discovered that there was they wanted to go and do surgery because they thought they were going to it out because it's not getting better and they weren't sure um what was causing it per se and so they come in you know hospitals are very scary if you're not used to them my mother and i are we're like we don't go to doctors you know we just pay attention to our bodies and we eat healthy and what have you and um i remember they come in and they tell her it's about two o'clock in the morning and they say we want to do surgery now and my mom looks at them and she's like, now she's like, it's two o'clock in the morning, 
you know, she's like, why? And he's like, well, we want to do it now. She's like, well, can I have some time to, you know, think about it and make another choice? He goes, there won't be another choice to make tomorrow. There will be different choices to make, but this will no longer be a choice. And so she goes, well, what are you going to do? He goes, well, we want to see, we want to go in and we want to see what is happening there because it's, it's not the scans are not clear enough and we know it's causing a difficulty look and looking at your blood values we're really concerned and so she goes okay and he goes um she goes well what's going to happen she's like well you're going to go under, nar- under anesthesia and then you know we'll do put the camera and the scope and we'll cut and you know all the rest of this and she goes and then what happens he goes and then you know we'll bring you out of anesthesia and We'll ask you, we'll check to see if your brain is still functioning by asking you a question that you will have given us the answer to before you go under anesthesia. And she goes, okay. And she goes, what's the question? And he said, well, the question will be, who's your favorite child? And she said, well, I'm not going to answer that. He goes, well, why not? She goes, well, once they know, it's ridiculous. You've got to keep it in, you know, you don't tell that kind of information. <laughs> She's like, you don't have children, do you? She's That's like, awesome. when you have four children, you don't make that kind of, there's no such, th- you never make it. And I, That's you, every parent's dirty secret is they all have a favorite. Right. And so, <laughs> um, so we, so she goes in for surgery, like within the half hour and I, they bring me a cot and say, you can sleep here. And I, I managed to fall asleep, which I'm surprised because and um, they come and wake me up at six o'clock and I think, oh my God, you know, she's gone or something. They're like, good news. She's out. Uh, we discovered that there's a perforated hernia, which we have been able to do something about. So we couldn't take, remove the tumor. Um, and her brain is working. And I'm like, what do you mean her brain is working? They're like, well, we asked her who was her favorite child. And her answer was, I'm not telling you that. So the, the, the cognitive processes you know, are, are working and, you know, we'll, we're going to give her some time and recovery and we'll, she'll be here, you know, bring her back around nine thirty or so. But that was the beginning of the next four months because my mother wanted to live. So we went through the chemo, we went through the acupuncture, we went through everything. And because she had this total determination, she wasn't done. And I threw everything into the air to make it happen right everything and then one day she was gone and she waited until my youngest brother and I were out of the room Mm -hmm. and then she went and my youngest brother said um, he said mom did that because she knew you were never going to let her go Mm -hmm. and I was like thanks Rupert so um, after all, she wanted her ashes to be brought back here because remember she had stayed an alien, and my Oma's ashes were in in Kronia by by her, where the family of my Opa lived, and um, I had been there, you know, to the church with her before, and so I thought when we were bringing her ashes here, I thought, what if I don't go back? What if I figure out all of the what made mom mom? before she was mom because I know her as our mother but what if I just don't go back because Seattle was full of all those last moments you know but you have to come here with a job which then started then the day we were here there was I looked on the internet and there was a role an opening 
And so I thought this, I'm going to listen to this, right? There's a, so I send a mail to the hiring manager who tells me, no, I'm on the May vacancy. So, uh, just, uh, send me a message when you get back to Seattle and over two weeks, we can have a, a, a team's call or Skype call with coffee and talk about it then. And I'm like, you know, this is totally, I'm like, I am in the Netherlands. Mm. I am, there is this job here. I'm here with the ash, putting place in the ashes of my mother. And what do you mean we can't have a conversation to see whether or not this, you know, I was just like, it is totally up. <laughs> and then, so that started the process. And then um, eventually, many, many, many interviews later. And now I hear from you that they needed a woman. They had to hire a woman, um, which is ironic. Um, and I ended up on landing here right before Halloween, 2013. Um, so when I first met you, you had just lost your mother. Yes. Wow. Yeah. I have to stop saying wow, but wow, wow, wow. Yeah. Okay. So that's how I got here. So where are you now and where are you? Where are you headed? Um, I'm at a place where I'm looking for the next chapter, in a sense. I think if I look at my life, if I look back, um, every 10 years or so, a significant change or shift comes. I've been here now for 10 years. Um, and now I'm wondering, what do I want to do with the next set of years? How can I scale the impacts of the work that we do? And, Does and that let's let's make this full circle. So yeah. I think people now have a pretty good idea of the work that you do. Yeah. What is the work that you do with this company? Do good only. Um, we at, at its most simple, we break down walls. What we do is we reskill anyone who wants to learn in t with IT skills. And then, so we train them for six months, then we hire them so that they can have their first experience, their first job, because a boot camp only works for you if you already have the network and you already fit in. And then we hire them for a year and we work with them during that year to then find their permanent or long-term employer because I've got another generation coming behind. That's our primary work. Um, and we, our goal there in there is going back to what a job in IT meant for me and my future, to be able to create that across more communities, right? And so often we, we have the, part of the reason that we have the view of what an IT worker looks like is because those are the people we have chosen to limit the access to the knowledge to. So we're busy. We, we in the past six years, we've trained a hundred people successfully that have completed that whole thing. Who've gone on to have outcomes that they can, um, do things with and that are different that and that's and I love that work I argue that the IT skills are just a tool if tomorrow organic gardening would be in the top five most desired jobs 
we would switch and teach organic gardening. The point is, it's not, it's the access to the knowledge, it's the access to the support, and it's the access to the networks and getting the experience so that we create a more inclusive IT workforce, but we're also creating a more inclusive society. And if we have a more inclusive IT workforce, a lot of the situations that we face with technology may not be 100% eliminated, but they can be averted. And that's, and I love what we do and I love the change that I see taking place and where people go to and the impact they have in their communities. But I want more. And I want more in the sense that the impact that we've had for those hundred are is fantastic. But I want more people to be able to experience that and be able to make that transition. And sometimes that means you need to think about moving. You need to think about going to a place where, you know, most of our customer base is international because we build for women entrepreneurs and social impact founders first. And then for companies that want to spend their IT budget differently because those are all the things that feed the training programs. And that's all well and good. And I'm really glad that we have that. But that also makes me realize that maybe another country that is looking at things differently, more, more green, more transformative, more transitional industry disruption, maybe that's a place where we could settle and reach even more. Because I have been doing this here in the Netherlands for six years, it'll be six years in 2024. And it is, you, you come to a point where you ask yourself, how much of my time and energy is going towards the impact I really want to be making? And how much of it is going against, is being, having to be invested into simply disrupting the resistance that comes from the existing constructs. And I find that I have less tolerance for continuing to try to survive the resistance to the ideas of what we're doing and who we're doing it with. Even though ironically, at the same time, we're starting to get a lot of recognition for it. So it's like double-edged sword because I could better turn that time and energy to, to working with people in changing the outcomes. So that's where, where I'm sitting. Like last year when I went to Spain for the fellowship for to work in the mountains, um, it started getting me thinking, what if I wasn't here in the Netherlands? What if I, what if we chose to do this somewhere else? What if we did that? What could we do? And so there's, there's the begin the questions, right? And the, the search for, okay, where do we go? What is, what is, what is the new thing? And that's, I do. So I don't know what the future holds. I do know what it holds is it's going to look different than 
these this decade has this these past ten years. Does this mean you're moving to Ecuador? I don't think so. <laughs> no. Okay. I I although I do want to go and visit it. Um, I also want to go to Indonesia to to see if I feel at home there. Um, but I don't think I'm moving to Ecuador. Not yet. You never know. I won't say no. Caroline, thank you so much for your time, your story, your insights. Um, this was more than a pleasure for me. This was mm, nutrition, this conversation. I want to say thank you to you for asking the questions that get me to think, which is a delight. And also for being the first that, you know, as I've started my two week period of only doing things with people I like that I like, then this is a fantastic way to begin it. And then I think I'm going to, I might actually be successful at making the whole two weeks last. So thank you, Beth. I got to go walk some dogs. You want to come walk some dogs with me? Absolutely. Okay, let's do it.